This is an exciting week to be a Chessfields pod fan because we are proud to announce that we have tricked Chessable into sponsoring our podcast. <laughs> Very exciting news. And in honor of this new sponsorship, every week we are going to have our very own JJ Lang announce to all of our listeners, our big family, what does your chessable cue look like, JJ? Well, right now, after I'm on a two-day streak of practicing and I have gotten my cue down to six... Wait, wait a second. JJ, you are not on a two-day streak. I'm not sure if you want to have that we shared account on our ad. One of us is on a two-day streak. That's all we can say. On my two-day streak, I have gotten my cue down to 6,394 moves. And I am excited to check in next week to see if I will break the 7,000 mark. Okay, so you're trying to go up, not down. I'm not trying. And that seems to be why I'm going up. (laughs) I'll try to bring it up and then you try to bring it down. Well, for those of you who are on a 600-day streak or those of you who have 6,000 moves in your queue, Chessable is an excellent way to learn more about every phase of the game and take courses from some of the best players in the world and, more importantly, some of the not best players in the world who are, frankly, better teachers. Yeah, I agree with that. Great. Those who can't play, teach. And those who can't teach, pod. And those who can't pod are all sitting on the Zoom right now. Or listening to this. Yeah. Are you obsessed with chess, but also kind of fun at parties? Do you keep your opening prep on your bedside table right next to your feelings journal? Welcome to the Chess Feels Podcast, the only chess podcast dedicated to the social and psychological aspects of this game we know and love. And hate. Tune in every week to join me, professional chess teacher and amateur feelings haver, JJ Lang. And me, professional therapist and amateur checkmate finder, Julia Rios as we dive into our shared love for the game and attempt to answer the most burning question for every chess obsessor. Why are we like this? Yeah. the fact that we're hanging out together. Oh, you think we're hanging out? <laughs> this is a business trip. <laughs> yeah, that's what I said. Wait, what did I say? Are we just work colleagues? We're work colleagues. Is that how I should start introducing you? I, I would rather you not talk about me. <laughs> okay, okay. I'll fight the urge. <laughs> My pronouns are not. not <laughs> okay, Welcome to cool. a very special episode of Chess Feels coming straight out of Ann Arbor, Michigan. What's up? Why are we in Ann Arbor? Because I live here. Why am I in Ann Arbor? For a business trip. Oh, that's right. <laughs> literally, literally just to record this podcast. We wanted to see if we still had the magic in studio together. Spoiler alert. We don't. <laughs> it's all gone. It's gone. We're so sorry. <laughs> we actually despise each other as well. It's been an awkward weekend, but we're we're working through it. We were hoping what happened was after a weekend of hanging out and starting to put together the Chessfields merch store. Oh, yeah which is going to be horrific. But while also doing that and thinking about the future of the podcast and everything, we also had a number of conversations about chess. And we started to realize that there is a theme to a lot of the conversations we were having, yeah. which was hashtag chess goals. Yeah, we both have a lot of chess goals. And a lot of people have a lot of chess goals, but that's not actually that interesting to me. What's interesting is the assumptions that go into a, what a chess goal should be. Yeah. What are the goals for what it's reasonable to hope for for long, long term throughout the course of your life? Or even if you took out the debate about whether or not it's reasonable, if we said, okay, let's go by our wildest imagination, 
is this even a useful chess goal? Should this be my chess goal? So there's two different conversations there, at least. What is, what are the most motivating goals? Are the most motivating goals even the most realistic? Are the most realistic goals even motivating? Is the purpose of a chess goal to be motivating? Yeah, I like that. How do I continue to foster that engagement and that motivation versus how do I improve my game or how much are those actually overlapping? And then at the the middle term level, (laughs) you know, what are your goals for the year? At what point does it make sense to switch from these are goals of things I would like to achieve to my goal for this year is going to be focused on how many tournament games I play or how many games I analyze or but even there by the end of the year hoping for some sort of progress is it a little bit out of our control sure is it bad to be like one of my goals is to gain rating points but maybe the other part that often gets missed here is the short-term level of not just what are my goals for this weekend or even today but literally what are my goals for this game What even is a good goal to have for a game of chess? Maybe it makes sense to start there and work our way out. Yeah, I think that that's so important because what are literally not even just my goals this week or this weekend, what are my goals within the hour that I'm spending right now? That's actually not something that I'm as much in the habit of thinking about as I wish I was. But what's so funny, and I think this is what I mean by saying the assumptions that go into chess goals, is you absolutely are. Yeah. So like, Convince me. Okay. So I feel like you've played several games where you've been like, oh, you know, I thought I was playing a really sick game and I was really happy with it. And then the evaluation comes on and it tells yes. me you made, you know, three blunders or something. Or or not even just the number of blunders. Actually, three blunders is very standard for me. That, that number doesn't bother me at all. Sometimes it's a lot more of a chaotic game that I wasn't expecting. And my disappointment isn't even the number of blunders. It's more like, man, I, I actually feel like I should have had a better pulse on when I was letting a winning position slip. Where mm-hmm. I was like, oh yeah, I'm doing great. I'm in control. So it's, it was, it's more about like, I wish my feel of the board matched what that eval bar looks like. Does that nice. make sense? That makes total sense. And I think what that just shows is even within that conversation, we saw two different kinds of goals people have for a game. Mm-hmm. One is mm-hmm. I want a game that is low on the blunders or maybe a different goal is even as high on the brilliant or best moves. Another goal is one where there's a kind of stability to the course of it. And then there's a very different thing that you're describing, which is I don't want to play a flawless game of chess. I want to find out that my impression of the game of chess I played was accurate. I want my read yeah. to be accurate. And just to say that these are these are very different types of goals, not just in the sense of, I mean, first of all, a goal of trying to play as many brilliant moves as possible is going to bring a lot more blunders along than a goal of trying to play as few blunders as possible. Because you're taking risks. And that's actually what I was going to say, JJ, is there's even games that I play where I know there's no way this is the winning move or even the best move or even a good move. But I think based on the way my opponent has been playing, that they're going to miss their best move. It's almost like I have a feel for my opponent, like they're playing sloppy or quick. So I'm going to take a risk and I'm going to play this not great move or make an unsound sacrifice with the gut feel that my opponent will respond incorrectly and I can still capitalize. And sometimes I'm right and sometimes I'm wrong, but in certain contexts, that is a very fun way to play. Use code gut feels for 20% off. But, but I think even maybe more a uh, professional way to reinterpret what Julia is describing is less of I'm going to play a move that I know is bad in the sense of like, or I know is not the best move in the sense of I know what the refutation is, but more mm-hmm. in a sense of 
I just have a feeling like there's, there could be a refutation or I'm not 100% certain I've calculated every line. And that can be getting a pulse off of the opponent, but that also can just be from understanding the position, right? Yes. Like the way that I would approach a very dynamic game in an opening that I know is supposed to produce very dynamic games gives me almost a sort of permission to do a sacrifice where I don't really know or care whether it's sound Mm -hmm. because I know that I cannot figure out how to solve it. And it's the sort of position where this is the sort of move that works right? versus like a very dry, no tension on the board exchange French, where if I can't calculate the sacrifice out to mate, I might be just losing a piece for no reason. I don't have that worry in the night orf. And then as a result, if I play an exchange French, I would expect fewer brilliant moves, but also fewer blunders and a higher accuracy. And when I play a Night Earth, whether it tells me that I had zero blunders or five, that has as much to do with things that were completely off of my radar as the things I was looking at. And I might have had an equally good sense of the position. Even in just one case, it turns out there's an eight move sequence that refutes it and the other there isn't but they were equally good practical choices. It's Mm -hmm. just the kind of game where the risk isn't just coming from my opponents playing sloppy. The risk is built into playing a kind of game that will reward risk. Right. And almost recognizing that difference. Which is to say that throughout the course of each game we play, being able to take a pulse on of like, what are my goals can even be in the sense of, am I trying to minimize risk because this doesn't seem like the kind of position that will reward it? or the kind of opponent. In some games I can think of, I'm just trying to make this as easy as possible for me to play and I don't need brilliancies. Right. And others, I'm like, you know, as hard as this would be for me to play and for me to calculate and navigate, it would be at least as hard for my opponent, if not harder. And that is going to depend on how you're feeling, what the opening is, what the position looks like, what the clock situation is, what the tournament situation is. But the worst thing you can do, and this is something I see all the time, is if you're really used to playing a more conservative style, then you just start playing these conservative moves and then your opponent gets the initiative and starts rocking you with sacrifices you didn't anticipate. Right. Or vice versa, you start sacrificing pieces from a very stale position where there was no need to. Yes, I do understand that. And then almost a totally different goal could also be fine. I'm in this position and maybe I don't understand the field that well, or I don't see the refutation. And so I'm going to play the move and let my opponent teach me, show me, prove Mm -hmm. to me, okay, how do you refute this? And then next time I know, and I can play it differently, but that in itself is another goal, which is different than I want to win this game and find the best move point blank period, right? Julia is killing the goal setting game here. Really? (laughs) Because what I was building up to is the first point that she made, which was so good, is that a better goal than just I want all the brilliant moves, I want no blunders, I want my 99% accuracy game. A better goal is just to say, okay, is your impression of the character of the game correct? Because yes. that's that's something where it's like, where you're thinking, I thought this game would reward chaos. I thought the result was chaos. And then I look at the evaluation and it tells me it was chaos. That tells me I had a good pulse of the position. Exactly. If I thought that something was really straightforward and it turns out that we were both missing lots of tactical chances, that's a really good opportunity to learn from that and say, oh, wait exactly. a minute. Why did I think that this was dry when apparently there were all of these pawn breaks or sacrifices? So having that goal of being mindful of what kind of game you want to play and what you are trying to get out of it allows you to adjust during the game and also to learn from the game, not just in the sense of was this move good or bad, but to say, okay, was my evaluation of the position there? Because that's something that can be a lot more important than anything else when it comes to things like time management or when it comes to things like long-term planning is 
if you've misevaluated the position as one where you're in a lot of danger, then you should slow down and calculate every single thing exactly. that might bail you out. But right. if you have a stable plus and their opponent has no counterplay, then you should probably just, like Julia said, make a move and let them figure it out. And so if you misevaluate the position as more chaotic than it is, then... Right, or more dynamic or it, yeah, than it is. Yeah, then that will change your play. And even if you end up reaching the right move, you'll reach there under the wrong circumstances. And if you're not thinking about what your goal was in the moment in that game, then you're not able to evaluate whether you had the right impression of the position. And you're just stuck being like, well, I'm not really sure how I was supposed to know that bishop takes h7 didn't work here. Yeah. But if you're like, okay, well, my reasoning was I thought that if I didn't act now, my opponent had a huge plus and the computer is showing me five different moves that are all stable plus 1.2 for me. And that I don't know why, but I can think about why because it's telling me that I could do literally anything and be fine. Yeah. <laughs> so what was it that I was afraid of? I love that. And I almost feel like here's the place where I'm going to make the case for blitz, which is that could be such a perfect opportunity to literally practice that very quickly and build up your information of how well am I doing that so that when I am sitting over the board, I will have a better pulse on that or I at least had the chance to analyze, assess, or practice it. You can play those blitz games, but the key is that you have to go back and analyze. Like you mm -hmm. said, even if in the end it did work out and you won the game, if you say, great, I won and hit next game and never go back and look at it, you would miss all that information and data to say, wow, I thought that this was a really dry, boring position, but actually there were all these tactical chances that I missed. Mm -hmm. And that's a way that you can learn about, about your chess, which can tie into these more yeah. short to medium term goals of what improvement's going to look like over the course of a month or a year or totally. something. And we've started to hint at like one way that being more cognizant of your immediate goals can help with reaching yeah. those goals. What are some other kind of shorter term goals that might be good for people to start thinking about besides, okay, I'm going to play the most accurate possible game in the next five blitz games that I sit down to? So for folks of different levels, but especially for people who are beginners or maybe that post beginner, you've gotten your rating around or over a thousand. And so, you know, you have a long way to go on your hashtag lifetime goals, but you're also no slouch anymore. The most overlooked goal I see is do not hang your pieces. Now, that sounds easy because if you've made it, you know, to that level where you're like not a beginner anymore, you're doing a lot of chess without hanging a lot of pieces. But I don't even just mean at the level of moves. I'm talking about, can you play all of your games that day without straight up blundering or hanging a piece? Can you punish 100% of your opponent's hanging pieces? Mm, um, but also like even, even in your thought process though, right? Like how long are you considering knight g5 on move three in the opening before you realize that queen takes g5 because they haven't played knight f6 yet? For you fried liver aficionados. Well, we, we don't have any fried liver listeners because last week we, we told them all they're bad in bed. <laughs> they're never going to listen to us again. But And they're going to spend way too long calculating 8G5 in the wrong position. No, they're going to spend way too long trying to get better in bed. They're sensitive about that now. They wouldn't have played the fried liver theory. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, no, I'm probably fine. I'm not listening to that podcast anymore. Click. What do they know? <laughs> okay, you're right. You're right. But because I think that this post-beginner mentality leads to one where like, you're starting to realize, oh, I'm starting to see how games can be decided by tactics or even worse. I'm starting to see how games, by worse, I think I just mean more intoxicating. Even worse, I'm starting to see how a coherent strategy throughout the game sets up the tactics. And as you start flooding your mind with all of those possibilities, there is less attention on the simple stuff. 
Mm-hmm. But the simple stuff might not be as perfectly ingrained as possible. So mm-hmm. I am a lot more impressed with people around the 1000 level who are very automatically ruling out blunders. Yeah. Like like hanging pieces or one move tactics. If you can do that in a way that almost feels automatic or That's effortless. That's what I was going to say. If you can build that foundation so that becomes more habitual wow, how much will that help your long-term game? Like exactly. enormously. Exactly. And I think this is something that I've seen in my own game was that I did not have very solid fundamentals either like in terms of just good approach to calculation or good strategic thinking. Mm-hmm. And I think I said something like this on Twitter when we were talking about like, Levy Rosman tweeted something about like a lot of people focus their training plans on improving their ceiling and not just improving their floor. Honestly, that is one of my favorite things I've seen posted on Twitter in the last two months. And I loved your response to it. So maybe you can uh, summarize some of that for the pod. Well, yeah, this comment might make sense to up to six listeners. But yeah, the ceiling is the roof, but the ceiling is not the floor. I'll fill you in later. (laughs) But so ceiling and floor, the way to think of it would be, this came up last week when we were talking to Sammy as well. Sammy was talking about how, how ridiculous is it that one night... I'm holding my own in mm-hmm. a drawn rook end game up a pawn against the GM. And later that same weekend, I am hanging a knight on move five to a one move tactic. And my response kind of glibly was like, okay, if you average outplaying a 2500 with making a blunder that a 500 would make, then you end up at 1500, which is your rating. But the less glib reasoning on that would be, to say, look, you know, one way you could be a 1500 is you play every game like a 1500. Another way to be a 1500 would be to have a ceiling when everything is clicking at your best that could be much, much, much higher, but your floor equally low. Mm-hmm. And if you can play like a 2000 one day and a 1000 the next, then you're just as 1500 mm-hmm. as somebody who's always playing like a 1500, whatever that means. And I wonder how many of our listeners will relate to that. Cause when I hear that, I feel like that person, I feel like my floor and my ceiling are pretty far apart on a bad day i feel like i can play chess so badly so i wonder how much of that too jj is about building those foundations Mm -hmm. so that they feel habitual Mm -hmm. is that what brings your floor up or essentially even if i'm having a bad day and i'm on an autopilot my instinct will still less frequently let me hang a piece exactly yeah and i agree with you i'm the same way on floor and ceiling like it's like my chess game is like the Sistine Chapel. <laughs> you still complimented yourself. <laughs> like my chess is like the Sistine Chapel. You guys all just heard JJ Lang admit that he's literally the masterpiece of chess. Okay. I feel like you tried to self-neg and you couldn't even do it. I wasn't trying. But I was just thinking, you know, well, first of all, this is probably something we've seen everyone do. And it's something that I find quite annoying because I've seen it so much, which is um, my rating is X. But it should probably be X plus 200 because I have several wins against people who are X plus 300. Yeah, like I can I can beat a 2100. So why am I stuck at 1700? I yeah. think I really am a 1900. Yeah, and, and it might be true. Right? Like if you're like, I must be a 2200 because I beat a 2100 once. Like that's an easy no. But right. well, yeah, maybe, maybe you are underrated. There are lots of 1700s who have a pretty high floor and low ceiling that averages to 1700 who will probably always lose to 2100s. Yeah. Then there are probably people 
who can absolutely hang with 2100s and also lose to 1300s. Yeah. And so the question is when it comes to being like underrated, it's not just a question of focusing on, well, what are your best wins, but also are your worst losses? Yeah. So if somebody's like, you know, I have several <laughs> wins over 2000 and I haven't lost to anyone under 1600 in a year. So I think my 1700 rating is underrated. I believe you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I don't know if you're losing to 1300s and beating 2100s in the same tournament, then you're just a 1700 as that other person. <laughs> I love that you're able to defend that comment that you made to Sammy. Um, yeah, it sounds so silly and not possible, but take the average. There's yeah. something to that. And 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 I think what's really illuminating about that is the temptation is to work on the ceiling. And so the temptation is yes, to like, exactly. if I'm 2100, I need to be finding books that are written for 22, 2300s. Right. I need to I love be that. I need to be training like that to get to that level. And it's not that that's wrong, but one problem with that is that it's really fucking hard. And sometimes people come to the conclusion that it must be the only way. And to a certain extent, it is, right? At a certain point, you will raise your floor to the 2100 level. And the only way to get better is to raise that ceiling. But if you are, you know, making strategic errors in evaluation, say, or in yeah. tactics or calculation, that would be closer to like tactics puzzles that would be appropriate for a 1600. Right. Then the good news is, oh, you don't need grandmaster preparation by Agard to improve your calculation. Yeah. Um, you need to really tighten up your intermediate or easy puzzle solving. And that is much, much easier than, <laughs> yeah. than, than the really, really hard stuff. And, good point. and it's just so easy to overlook that. And then to find yourself again and again being like, yeah, you know, I really hung in there with the 2300 and then I just, missed an easy tactic and it's like okay if your if your floor was higher on your understanding of those positions if your floor was higher of like just being of what you could calculate effortlessly if your floor was higher even in the sense of like being able to perform well under pressure um you would not have made that blunder perfect so you do not need to be treating yourself like a mini GM because that's your overall goal. Yeah. You just need to be there. And so I think what I was saying to about be this, drilling exactly the foundations. So I think what I was saying on the ceiling and floor stuff on Twitter, I, de- I genuinely think that I've learned more out of like really trying to get everything I can out of books that I think are appropriate for students in like the 13 to 1600 or 1800 yeah. range, really getting all of the ideas of what's going into something like logical chess, move by move by Chernov, or like going through mm-hmm. anyone's simple chess book, not to be confused. So M's simple chess book, not to be confused with Steen's simple chess book, not to be confused with M's more simple chess, and not to be confused with Gopal Menon's lifetime repertoires over Thinker's <laughs> edition. <laughs> I love that. That kind of leads me perfectly to the question I've been having for you this whole time, which is, yeah, what what would you do or what would you recommend for students then for what can specifically raise that floor? Right. This is a hard question. So I like motion towards it with the beginners of like having these goals of just not hanging pieces. I think that's one thing that I like to do is put myself on much easier tactics. So if I'm on Lee Chess, you have... I think the default is if you say normal, then if your puzzle rating is 2000, the app, you'll be getting puzzles around 2000. Mm-hmm. If you set it to easier, you get puzzles around 1700 and easiest around 1400. Mm-hmm. So something is to go to easiest and not just see how quickly I can get the right answer, but how quickly I can identify 
what the problem must be. Is this a checkmating problem? Mm-hmm. Is this a hanging piece problem? Yes, I hear you. And to see if I can do that. And then also try and push myself to solve this as fast as I can, but without thinking hard. The goal is to almost not let myself get into that flow state of, oh, this is just obviously blah, 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 because it's obvious until it isn't. And it's running in the background, but you're not always paying attention to it. Right. But what I want to feel super automatic is, oh, yeah, If I'm looking at a 1400 level puzzle, I should be able to glance at it and without even trying, see what the problem is. And sharpen that Mm -hmm. immediate recognition. Because if you're able to see that more consistently during Mm -hmm. a game, then it doesn't even matter if you're trying or stressed because you're still recognizing it. But if it's still taking, you know, you know, like five or 10 seconds or longer to solve those puzzles, but you're like puzzle rating is 2000, it's very tempting to be like, I want to solve the 2400 puzzle in five minutes and brag about it. And that's awesome if you can do it. Yeah, it's not Mm -hmm. bad at all to raise your ceiling. But if you're doing that and you're not also lifting up the floor and that gap Mm -hmm. is really big, your reading is stagnant for a reason, inevitably. Maybe a really good example of this is um, Endgame Foundations. So I know a lot of people, not you, but I know a lot of people around your level who would say, no, I know, I know the fundamental endgame stuff. Like I know pawn endgames. <laughs> Can you imagine me trying to say that with a straight face? Try it. <laughs> I can't. All right. Now let's do it. Okay. I really will try. Um, yeah. I, I haven't been working hard at it, but it just comes so easily and naturally to me that whenever I see an endgame, I kind of know where the pieces should go. I know which pawn breaks to look for. I've never really struggled with that. So it's going really well. So Julia made it 90% <laughs> through that without smiling, but also didn't make any eye contact. And as soon, as, she made, as, soon as she looked at me, she started cracking up. <laughs> I was looking at the dog. And why is she talking about where the pieces should go in a pawn endgame? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I don't know how to play endgames, guys. But, but I will. JJ's going to teach me. Mm-hmm. End game camp 2022. Oh, yeah. Starting July. July 4th seems like a good time. Like the fireworks go off and then I do a couple months of end game camp. I've talked to Michael camp. about this. We're shipping Julia off to end game boot camp this summer. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Right. But but going back to the idea of this of end game training, it's like a lot of people will be like, no, I understand the fundamentals. And what they mean by that is that wouldn't take them a whole lot of time or they can sort of calculate their way through it and are pretty accurate or even very accurate at doing it. And they're like, no, I know my fundamental end games. Mm-hmm. It's like the difference between that and somebody who can just glance at the position and without calculating, just tell you from the rules, you know, this is something you, one of the most recommended chessable courses I see is hundred end games. You must know. And this mm-hmm. is something why is like one of there's like, there'll be different rules of like, depending on what rank the pawn is on will depend on, do you need to be beside the pawn or in front of the pawn or in front of the pawn with opposition, things like that. And if you know that, and you can just glance at that position and say pawns on the third rank, I'm in front of the pawn by one square and don't have the opposition. That's a draw and don't right. have to calculate further. Then the difference between that and somebody who can look at that and work out in under a minute that you can't win is huge. And that's something where I always see higher rated players and more experienced players, you know, pull things out in drawish endgames because they're just using less processing power basically to get to the same conclusions or they're getting there more accurately without having to work as hard. And it's like, no, like, I'm glad that you have a grasp of this or that you have this vague idea of what the opposition is that you didn't a few months ago. But it's very tempting to then be like, all right, and now that I sort of understand what the opposition is, bring on my Dvoretsky. 
And there's something that's totally being missed there. That's almost drilling that into mm-hmm. automation. And there's such a difference between can you look at it and think about the rules that you've learned and get there eventually versus can you glance at it and see it immediately? Those are worlds apart. Right. Like So something for that, like when you see king and pawn versus king anywhere on the board, does that look as obvious as to whether it's a win or a draw as king and queen versus king? And you can tell whether or not it's a win or a stalemate. Like that's Beautiful. the level that you can drill it down to it, that raises your floor. Yeah. Even if those two players are equally at the same level at evaluating the Dresky positions and they each get, you know, 20% of them right or something, if that could really be the difference between a 1400 and an 1800 player. Right. Um, And that to me also feels like a difference between can I learn as much about chess as possible, which actually might not be a very useful goal versus can I learn the most useful things from my game right now and learn them so deeply that I feel that in my bones Segway alert. So (laughs) when it comes to the goals of building that training regimen, or if you're someone like me, who's allergic to structure, even just these general goals of like, these are the sorts of things I want to improve on. Um, I've gotten a little bit more specific than I would like my chest to be better in two years than it is now. But I don't really know what to do because um, unlike Julia, I don't pretend that I know how to play the end game or anything else. <laughs> I don't actually do that, JJ. I was just convinced. You were just so convincing. <laughs> I really think that's the real you. Uh, that was very unconvincing. So we're both unconvincing. That's, yep. That's us. So so let's talk about that some. Um, it sounds like there may be an assumption built into what you said is, okay, yeah, when I'm thinking about building up my goals for the next few years. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking about what can actually improve my chest the most. And if you don't make that assumption, or if you don't like have that presence of mind, another assumption you could make is I just got to learn chess, or I just got to focus on even harder and harder stuff. Right. Um, But something that's tricky there is sticking to a study plan or not even the plan, but just studying regularly, working hard regularly is very hard. It is so hard. I mean, I've never done it before, but I imagine it would be very difficult. And it might just be true that grinding, quote unquote, easy tactics until you are cranking them out in seconds is a really, really beneficial part. And maybe should even be a greater percentage of your training program than doing the hard stuff that's still really rewarding and fun. But it's also possible that like those sorts of drills can just get stale really fast. I was about to say, and if it doesn't excite you and you don't come back to it, then we have to have a different conversation of, okay, maybe this would be the most effective possible way to build a study plan. But if it doesn't pull you in and you can't do it, then it's actually not the most effective. Exactly. And so I'll naming that there's a lot we can do to focus on the fundamentals. There's a lot you can do to focus on the boring stuff. There's a lot you can do that focuses on a lot of things that you just maybe don't enjoy. You have to balance that with the fact that as a hobbyist, your livelihood, your success, hopefully your happiness in life does not at all depend on your achieving these goals. And so to what degree do you want to set goals that require doing a lot of stuff that just isn't enjoyable? And I don't think the answer has to be zero. The second you stop having fun, you should move on to the next thing. I mean, there's something really rewarding at a higher level of like overcoming that, getting over that hump or like seeing that hard work or the painful stuff pay off in that moment where you just score a victory over someone higher rated than you because they made a miscalculation in an endgame position that you didn't even have to calculate because you just had the right plan. And you're like, wow, like really drilling myself to that level is how I was able to outplay this person who 
could outcalculate me. Right. Um, like that can all be really rewarding, but at a certain point, I don't think I buy into the idea of, so you have to treat yourself like a professional athlete who has to do all that stuff, no matter how hard it is because it's their whole livelihood. And I think some people have that drive and that capacity and the life that allows for it. And honestly, great. Go for that. That's awesome. I'm, I'm quite jealous to be totally transparent, but I think for a lot of people that is not only not possible, it's not even necessarily what they really want. And even if there's pressure to feel that that is the quote unquote best way to do it, um, can we find a way that actually fits it a little bit better with their overall goals, their overall objectives and possibilities around chess? I always feel better when I look back on my past couple of weeks of studying or something, when I'm able to point to like a lot of things that came out of the work I was doing that left me feeling really excited about chess. Yeah, same. Um, and so, I mean, I think at this point, like one of my, like one of my goals, and this ties into something Julia was saying a few episodes ago of, you know, you can't really only have outcome oriented goals because so much of the outcome is out of your control. Yeah. But having process oriented goals, it's like my approach at this point is as long as I'm not only doing puzzles, I'm not only looking at openings, I'm not only doing strategy books, as long as I'm kind of mixing it up, my goal is to like spend some amount of time on chess every day. Perfect. And be able to point to something that I learned about that I was excited to teach in my lessons, that I was excited to tweet about, that I was excited to show Julia that in rare cases, I tried to show Amelia, although it started to go better recently. That's a separate. Yeah, you've said that. Yeah, I've gotten her to admit multiple. Yeah, anyways, no, I can't. She will be mad if I share that. She doesn't like chess. But the point being... You have all these other indicators of, was that the type of chess study I want to be doing? Do mm-hmm. I feel good about that? And you're tapping more into, great, did this make me feel excited? And did I learn something as opposed to, did I crush this number of puzzles or whatever that outcome statistic could be? And I'm 100% confident that I could be improving according to some metrics at a much faster rate if yeah. I had more structure. Yeah. However, I'm also confident that it would feel like a chore Yeah. in a way Absolutely. that I already feel like I have enough chores. And especially now that um, chess isn't just my hobby, but also chess teaching is my profession. Mm-hmm. I don't want the, the chess stuff I do for me to feel like work when I already am spending most of my working hours or all of my working hours doing chess work. Yeah. And if that yeah. means, and it doesn't mean that I'm giving up goals of improving at all. It just means that, you know, if I have a tournament coming up in a month, there's no guarantee that I'm going to do anything on this part of my game in that month if it's just not feeling good. If I wake up tomorrow and I'm like, Julia and I were looking through Open Sicilians all weekend, and that makes me really want to go through some model Sicilian games and add them to my collection. And a lot of my students play some sort of Sicilian. And it would be really nice to show them some of this. And like, if that's what gets me up tomorrow, that's great. And mm. then if I realize that it's been a year since I looked at an endgame, then... That's a different problem. That's when I start looking for different books, different resources, asking around or being like, I am really struggling to find anything that excites me in this facet of the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally agree. I totally agree with that. I I think it would be really interesting. And I think it would be really useful probably to a lot of people listening to almost hear you synthesize. What are your chess goals? I'm just here so I don't get fined. <laughs> I don't know. And you know that I didn't know. You knew that you were putting me on the spot there. And you're, yeah, but, yeah. But it'll be cool to hear you think it through. Because other people are going to want to do this mm-hmm. process. Other people might listen to this and be, yes, I want new chess goals that make me feel excited. 
and improve my game and improve the way I'm thinking about chess, how how do I come up with a list of goals? That's a really hard thing to do. I've tried and kind of come up empty handed. So I'm really curious to see how you think through it. At the start of 2018, I had just gotten over 2000 and my goal for 2018 was to get over 2100. And I did that honestly in two months. Flex. And then, (laughs) (laughs) then my goal was like, okay, well, maybe my goal should be master. And then my rating went up and down and under 2100, higher a little bit, then under again and totally stagnated. But then I was like, okay, cool. You know, maybe one problem was that I didn't set my goal high enough. So start Mm. of 2020, my goal is like, all right, cool. This is going to be the year I make master. And now that's funny for those of you who remember contemporary history. (laughs) Yeah, I I know some of your AP US classes stopped at the Vietnam War, (laughs) but if you made it to 2020, there was not a lot of tournament chess. But even before then, looking back on it, I think what was clear was that this whole thought of, oh, well, maybe if I set a higher goal, I wouldn't have like fluctuated and stagnated so much after I hit my goal Hmm. turned into, wait a minute, I really, as much as I want that goal to be 2200, have the title, I feel like I can shut out some of the imposter syndrome of should I really be calling myself a chess teacher and trying to do this if I don't even have a national federation title and have something there, but also like have something to show that I'm still improving. Because I think part of my self-worth as a teacher is that I'm a teacher who didn't do most of my improvement as a child. I'm somebody who is doing this as an adult and knows what it's like to do it as an adult. And that's huge. And that's huge. And that's a great selling point. And that is true. And that is me. It was much easier to be like gained 300 points in nine months after getting back into chess than it is being like gained two points in the past two years. But um, I almost feel like we could make that argument. Right. The way that you're exactly. grinding it out, that that is the hard part. That's what people are in the thick of. Exactly. And, and, and you'll have so much insight. And that is how I think my goals have changed. Yeah. Is that now I think that get to 2200, is that something that I would love to see happen sooner rather than later? Mm-hmm. My goals have really become things like playing tournaments regularly without worrying about what they're going to do for my rating. Oh, I can't even tell you how happy it makes me to hear you say that. And that was a recent goal because there is this weird span where there was like a tournament in Iowa that I drove to, then like a small thing in Nebraska, and then another tournament in Omaha the following weekend. And I just realized by the third weekend in a row of playing chess, just how much easier it was to play chess. And like, I really did feel like I was in shape and I was like, oh, okay. Even if not every single one of these games was great, I was just feeling the floor raise in my game just from being more in practice. And building that muscle, absolutely. In a way that just made each individual game so much easier to play and to play quickly or just realizing that by the end of the third tournament in a row, I was so much less tired. That kind of consistency is a really good goal. And like related to that consistency is even if I have outcome goals, they're they're even more short term. They're like, well, play as many tournaments as I can without losing points. Yeah. But then I think another and our, our goals like in the, in the sense of consistency of like maybe something as egregious as 40 percent of my wins might against lower rated players could be described as swindles where <laughs> i've go- gone off the rails or done something that i really had no excuse to do and had to claw my way back in and one of the goals is like not even a numerical one but just fewer games like that i think swindles are actually a beautiful illustration of what that difference is between ceiling and floor yes, yes. the swindle means the floor was not as high as i wanted it to be and i I have the capacity to outplay this player, 
but my floor caused these mistakes and I had to claw my way back up. Exactly. And for the other player, it's very tempting to be like, I was completely winning and then I just blew it. But the thought is like, no, your lower floor showed because if I'm in a busted position, I'm probably not able to throw GM level complications your way. Yep. Um, In fact, I might not even be able to throw 2100 level complications your way. But if I can throw 1800 level complications your way and I know that they don't work for reasons I can calculate and you can't calculate your way out of that, then that shows that your floor is at a lower level. And this is so beautiful. I feel like this is such a light bulb moment for me. Floors win games, right? Mm -hmm. Floors, not ceilings, win games. Mm -hmm. If you have a higher floor, you can beat a player with a much higher ceiling than you Mm -hmm. by playing a tight game and not making those mistakes and capitalizing and having that recognition when your opponent does. They can have the most brilliant mind in the world, but floors win games. I think there is a real possibility of that. Especially tying it in even further with somebody who has a high floor, has worked on their floor, and has thought about like even modifying their goals in this sense of consistency and in the sense of not overexerting on trying to calculate everything that could maybe be brilliant. Yeah. Um, And then is aware of that is the kind of person who's not going to under pressure be like, well, now I'm suddenly tempted to sack everything just because if I go into the end game, I'll probably lose. Yes, Um, I totally agree. Or on the flip side, if you're in a position where you're like, okay, yeah, for whatever reason, I feel like the kind of end game we're going to is one that makes no sense for me. I can't evaluate if I'm better, equal or worse. And this much higher rated player presumably can do a better job. If you can make that evaluation correctly in a game where you're like, I cannot figure out how good this position is and accordingly I can't figure out how to play it or what my plans would be. And then you decide you want to start slow down and calculating more and take more risk and whatnot because you're kind of saying almost, I've evaluated that my floor is too low for this kind of end game that could happen. And so Mm -hmm. I'm going to try and get more out of my ceiling right now. Yeah. And now long-term goals, how do I raise the floor there? And so I'm going to slow down and see if I can really calculate, treat it like if I'm a 2000, are there any 2500 puzzles here? Mm -hmm. And can I reach my ceiling and find one? Because if not, then I'm going to be playing like a 1500. Yeah, which is a totally different way to think about a chessboard in front of you than what most people are probably doing 99% of the time. Which is probably something more like what we all hear, which is, well, always look for the best move. Exactly. I love that. I love that. I can't even tell you how happy it makes me to hear that because that is so pervasive. There were kids um, when I would teach, I would say, okay, what are the first moves you should look for? And they would give a really horrible answer, which was checkmates. (laughs) I was like, okay, cool. I mean, yes, if you find a checkmate, I would recommend playing it. You are such a good teacher. That's really good advice, JJ. However, (laughs) if you look at a move and you're just learning chess and do not know whether it's checkmate or not, what can you look for that can help you not pick moves at random out of a bag to figure out which ones are the checkmates? Yeah. But then at higher levels, you still hear people being like, okay, yeah, you know, just look at the position and try and figure out what the best move is. And it's like, okay, well... Is the best move going to be something forcing? Is it going to be something that bails you out of a hard position? Is it going to be something that's a bit more flexible? And all of those questions come in before you start looking at the candidate moves. Totally. And that reminds me of something that actually came up between us over this weekend. One of the many times we've spent hunched over a chessboard, the position that we were in, (laughs) you're kind of saying, you know, Julia, what, what do you play here? 
And shipping that question, I even said, okay, what are the candidate moves? And you saying, no, wrong question. I don't even want you to look for candidate moves, let alone look for the best move. Where do you want your pieces to be? And maybe that's not a candidate move right now, but what would be the ideal position? What are you trying to improve? Where would the pieces be in your wildest dreams? That's totally different than looking for candidate moves. And that blew my mind. And and the reason for that was to see why that was the appropriate question to ask was because Black had no obvious ways to improve any of their pieces. Mm -hmm. And because of that, figuring out what you're doing next turn, not very important because there's nothing they can achieve now. And once you realize that, then you can realize that the question changes from like, what's something that makes a threat to something like, okay, what are their only hopes of freeing themselves from this bind? Can I prevent that? Yeah, it was so beautiful. And it was so funny because as soon as you asked me that question, then I was able to look for moves that really did slowly but surely not even improve White's position because White's position was already good. Mm -hmm. But how do I maintain that advantage versus how do I create a, a new advantage out of thin air? Or how do I even capitalize on the advantage? No, you're at an advantage. How do you keep the advantage? And now let's put the pressure on black. You get out of it. I'm going to slowly choke you. You wiggle out. And so a question that you can ask, even as you're doing like your tactics trainers puzzles mm-hmm. at any level is just, okay, what's the appropriate kind of question here rather than just assume, I well, I see lots of checkmates and back ranks, you know, like do a material, material count, right? Like, are you already up and just looking for that knockout blow? Mm-hmm. Are you already up, but multiple of your pieces are hanging and you're trying to go from rook up under pressure to exchange up, but not under pressure? Yeah. Are you in an equal position where even like a small couple upon victory could turn you from equal to better are you worse and desperately needing there just like even at that level just being aware of what's the urgency what's the goal yeah this feels like such a theme i feel like this really does touch on something that we chatted about with gopal in the context of openings which is it's so much more important to have that deep rich understanding of the character of a position rather than memorizing opening lines or being able to look at a position and mentally note here's the advantages or here's the weaknesses and the strengths but rather to understand the character or the spirit of play that to me feels so much more important but also so much harder to do so that actually is a perfect time to ask this question since you got me about like what are my goals for chess (laughs) as we're hearing like you be so excited but also appropriately trepidatious about the possibility of really having that sort of mastery like long-term goals lifetime goals yeah what is it that you want out of your relationship with chess oh that's so hard to answer jj i i'm embarrassed by how little thought i've put into that um as i've been playing chess i i have not been very goals oriented because it's so fun it's so easy for me to be process oriented because i love the process but i do think it's nice to have a balance of those things um and it's a good question to be thinking about so maybe you can even help me think about this now and we can kind of show what that process looks like to kind of think through that and put together some goals for someone who doesn't have them right in this moment because I certainly don't have a list hiding in my back pocket. But the first things that come to mind for me is one thing from this conversation even that makes me feel really excited is I do want to build a better foundation of some of those sort of instant sharp recognition patterns. I think my pattern recognition really needs to improve. Okay, that sounds good. But like, but why it needs to improve in order for what? 
in order for me to be better at chess. So is your goal to be better at chess? Yes, that is one of my goals. Okay, and is your goal to be better than you are now and I don't care how much? Is your goal to be... Oh, good question. ...good enough at chess to where you feel like you can be really getting so much more out of things on your own? Is your goal to be playing at X rating level? I love this question. I do have an answer to this one, which I'm going to steal from John McKenzie. He said something that I totally related to and agreed with, which was, I want to be good enough at chess that I can hang. I want to be good enough at chess that I can give my friends a good match and uh, not embarrass myself almost. So that's kind of how I feel too. My goal is not necessarily to become the highest rated possible player. My goal is to be able to give my friends a good game and It's so funny because I feel like it taps perfectly into this conversation, which is, I think I just want to raise my floor. Mm. I think raising my floor is more important to me right now than raising my ceiling. I don't feel a lot of pressure for my rating to go up. As someone who's not a professional chess player, is not a chess teacher, I have a totally separate career. So I almost kind of want to like tighten my game more than I want to become a 2100 over the board player. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense and is a really admirable goal. What do you think about the claim that like it can actually be motivating to have like some more, especially when we're talking about over the course of a lifetime, not the things you're focusing on every day. But I hear that and I'm thinking, you know, if you really are being able to achieve all these things that you're saying are your goals, I think that you being a 2000 plus over the board player sounds very likely if not necessarily as like the thing you're shooting for but just like yeah that sounds like if you keep the passion you've had if you keep up the work that you're putting into it and you keep doing the things it takes to raise your floor yeah i think that over your lifetime yeah an a player crossing 2000 seems very realistic what do you think about saying i think that it's worth naming that as a goal i know i feel so torn about that because instantly you're right if i had a goal about rating i do imagine i might feel more motivated great how do i get there and i might be putting in more time every day I wonder if it is almost like a self-soothing mm-hmm. to be like, actually, I'm kind of happy where I am, which is true. And I don't really care about rating. Now the amount of work that I'm putting in feels appropriate and good. Whereas if I had a goal, no, I actually really do want to raise my rating and, and focus. I imagine I would work a lot harder. So it's kind of a different question of how much do I want to prioritize this and how much harder do I want to work? I actually think adding in somewhat of a rating goal, kind of like you said, JJ, would be beneficial. Yeah, and I think with that, a question that we hear a lot, I mean, you know, like the immortal question. I've been playing chess for six months and my rating online has gone from 400 to 1,000. How long before I'm a GM? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what's so scary is we start talking about the positive value of having these rating goals or especially a long-term goal. If somebody's like, well, I want to gain a thousand points in a year and it's like, okay, you're not that eight-year-old I played in Iowa who's gone from 1100 to 1800 in the past nine months. When we're talking about lifetime, like, yeah, okay, sure. You know, like you're like a 1200 player, lifetime goal, 2200, you know, that's that's not the same patently absurd goal of I'm a 1200 and my year goal is 2200. Of course. And so if somebody says, all right, 1200 player, adult, lifetime goal, beat Magnus Carlsen. I was like, okay, that's a patently absurd goal. So how do you start to figure out when you're thinking of 
actual goals, how do you make them real or how do you determine what is realistic? And this is just a question that a lot of people ask. And I mean, there's general questions about what a realistic goal is or like what's realistic for an adult mind. Right. But even within chess, it's like, okay, yeah, is national master an achievable goal? Is I am an achievable goal? Is trying to get above 1800 an achievable goal? I don't think there's anyone answer there, but that is an interesting, I think, question to maybe touch on here as we're talking about this idea of long-term goals, because a lot of people don't really know what they should be or are making assumptions about what they should be that might really be misshaping their their patterns right like in both directions exactly. are they overestimating or underestimating yeah and yeah. like so for instance if i'm like a 1000 rated player who thinks that it'll be incredibly easy to get to nm as long as i keep working hard that really might push me more towards the ceiling than would be necessary right yeah 100 that really hammers at home really drilling down and having that repetition with the lower level skills i'm sure there's almost a resistance or even a repulsion to that this feels beneath me or this mm-hmm. does not feel useful i'm trying to be an nm mm-hmm. so i do really see how that could interfere yeah and of course you know it's, it would be compatible to be like okay good you know if your lifetime goal is nm then that doesn't mean your one-year goal has to be 1500 if you're 1000 your one-year goal can be still 1100 and you know yeah. And even if we take the fact that it's not linear, then, you know, that can still be a 30-year plan to 2200. So it doesn't yeah. automatically follow. But it, it's very tempting to be like, if these are my very lofty goals, then I want to be doing the lofty work now. Like, I, I see that book that says GM preparation. And I'm like, yeah, that's what I want to be doing. And I'm like, no, um, how to beat your dad at chess is actually going to help you a lot yeah. more right now. Yeah, mm. I think that's so good to almost normalize and validate that for people at those levels. I, I I think those resources and skills would really help them. I saw in your Twitter post, JJ, that you already mentioned about floors and ceilings, how at a certain point in your training, you went back to logical chess, Mm -hmm. which we think of as like an 1100, 1200, maybe 1400 at the most kind of book. Mm -hmm. I've stopped hanging pieces. What's the first strategy book I should read? That would be my answer. I love that. I love that. I think (laughs) you even saw it front and center on my shelf. I was I was thinking, yeah, actually, when I went back and looked at this book, it felt so elementary that it was actually really tempting for me to say, I'm going to skip this and do something a little bit more advanced because I know all these principles already. But how do I know them? Do I know them in the way you've said? Or if mm-hmm. I look at a board and really think about it, I can get there eventually? Or is it lightning? And what you said in that thread made me pull that back out. And I do think it's helping. And it's making me feel more excited. It is kind of easy. It's like, yeah, I do know this. But how deeply can I know it? It's a slightly different way to study. It's been a really good addition to my study plan. A word that can be really useful here for thinking of these goals is this idea of fluency within chess. And it's hard to say, you know, at what rating are you fluent in chess? What a horrible question that I have no interest in. <laughs> but just to say, yeah, it almost sounds like you're describing. It's like, yeah, you know, I looked at some of these attacking themes and they made sense to me. But then when I think about my own relationship to it, like there's a whole section in that book of D4 model games. And a lot of them are almost like London system or Tory attack, kind of typical Bishop D3 takes H7 sacrifice stuff. And then I think back to when I was 1800 and how many games I lost as black to those kinds of tactics mm-hmm. and those kinds of attacks where I failed to find sufficient counterplay. Mm-hmm. And I think, okay, yeah, even though I certainly understood how those attacks worked, I clearly didn't have a fluency in them that allowed me to prevent them. And now being able to look at that and be like, oh, okay, this is exactly where the lack of coordination is coming in and how the problem is coming in. And to just be able to like glance at the position and be like, oh, okay, 
this is a lack of development that's going to really burn black in the structure versus, oh, even though black isn't playing for very much here, white's missing the light square bishop and has no play. And just to be able to make that snap judgment really does feel like a sort of fluency that's very different than could I calculate in five minutes in both positions whether black is fine. Yeah, brilliant. Really well said. Exactly. And so maybe and maybe like a long term goal is for me, maybe more than anything, it's like to keep achieving some sort of fluency or a, yeah. more, a higher proficiency of fluency in chess, like have just really feel like more and more is making sense in a more intuitive way, not because intuition is innate, but because intuition is learned from this sort of study. And my question is great. Love that. How do you achieve that? What does that actually look like on a daily, weekly, monthly basis? Yeah, I mean, this is the part where I feel like, in a sense, I am the wrong person to answer this question, because I just don't care about how much I'm achieving that in a daily, monthly, weekly basis. But the thought is, when I'm looking at exciting chess, part of what excites me is trying to make sense of how could these unexpected things become more expected or clear. Or when I'm playing tournaments, the reason why I'm so into the importance of annotating your own games and annotating them without an engine is to try and like, let's see, like, can I piece through the game and articulate what it is that thematically or at a very abstract level caused problems for me or for my opponent. Brilliant. And then can I start to, this is something that Axel Smith and Pump Up Your Rating talks about a lot is like, and then can you identify what sorts of mistakes you made in that thought process that made it harder for you to play the position correctly. And if you're doing that, then what you're doing is you're pointing yourself towards where you have or are lacking that fluency or proficiency. And so I think maybe there, the point that I'm saying, the best way you can do that is to try and get a realistic pulse on where you are and are not fluent or proficient or have a sense of it. Yeah, that is the first step, right? The first step is admitting you have a problem. (laughs) That is true though, right? That's a cliched platitude for a reason and that requires one having the awareness of what questions am i asking when i'm playing a game of chess and looking for my next move are those the right questions what questions could i have asked and also looking back and analyzing your games how many people are not even doing that you you did come up with some really good concrete steps even though you resisted and you're like i don't care well yeah so i I appreciate the push because i'm not trying to be like a cool hot girl who's saying i don't care you just are a cool hot girl who doesn't care so you don't have to try I didn't didn't say it, but (laughs) friendship was going to be over if you didn't say it. I I just had a feeling that that was really what you were getting at. But Um, what can I say, you know? But no, I mean, I just because I see people who are so much more, I'm going to put on the spreadsheet the work I'm doing every day and be very regimented and stuff. And that's just never been my approach. And I find it harder to conceptualize what goals are and what steps towards goals are in a way that doesn't look as rigid or formalized as that, in a way that keeps the fun in there. And this has been such a useful and exciting conversation to have for me to really reflect more and share more on like how I think that can look like, because there aren't as many models of that, which can be so important for lots of lots of people who just don't have the kind of rise and grind mentality about what's supposed to be their recreational hobby, which I have huge respect for. Well, I like that's where you're landed. And eventually, JJ, I would love, you know, even with some of your guidance to at least have some sort of vague outline of what those goals look like for myself. I, I, I definitely don't have a list right now, but I would love to put something like that together and think about it 
more concretely, even if it's not a structured Excel spreadsheet, you know? Well, I tell you what, call me when you get back from Endgame Camp and we'll set something up. <laughs> no, the time is now. I need to do it before Endgame Camp. <laughs> all right. Well, coming to you from Michigan, fuck chess. All my homies play chess. <laughs> all my homies are bad at Endgames. If you're crushing Endgames, you and I will not get along. If as you're well crushing Endgames, we we're not crushing on you. <laughs> As always, thank you for letting us take you into this deep, dark forest. Where two plus two equals five, and the path leading out is only wide enough for listeners like you. Intro and outro music provided by JPEG Mafia. We would be truly touched if you subscribe and leave us a glowing review. And tell all of your friends. (laughs) Yeah, all of them. And every week, we'll be gifting one lucky subscriber who leaves a five-star review a lifetime premium diamond membership to leechess.org. Unlocking all of their features. Even that? especially that and don't forget to follow us on twitter at chess feels pod oh and if you didn't like what you heard do not hesitate to message any feedback no matter how critical or scathing directly to mr dodgy our social media manager even though he doesn't know it (laughs) at chess problem one yeah Yeah.